Seattle's morning news. Good morning. The need for competency evaluations has skyrocketed, and uh, this is judges requesting these evaluations before somebody goes to trial. However, there are not enough services for those evaluations, and there's a new bill that the Senate approved uh, at the request of Governor Jay Inslee, actually, that, that may just solve this. So we've invited Senator Monka Dingra, who sponsored the bill, it's uh, Senate Bill 5440, to talk about this. Uh, Monka, good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Can you explain the skyrocketing of these requests from judges? Where did that come from? So in order for a state to prosecute an individual, they have to be competent, which means they have to understand the nature of the charge and be able to assist in their own defense. What had happened during COVID is we had a backlog of a lot of cases that weren't filed. So we're seeing a lot more cases being filed. We also have been seeing, um, you know, mental health issues and mental illnesses skyrocketing in the last few years and the need for those services really are strapped. So you have this combination of a lot of cases being filed, people dealing with a lot of mental health issues. And we have had a state hospital that during COVID had to restrict the number of patients they could take because of um, COVID. They had a few outbreaks. And so all of that has resulted in some of the worst wait times we have ever seen in the history of the state. So we're trying to relieve some of those pressures because we do want to make sure that people can regain competency so they can proceed either with prosecution of that case or be uh, sent to some kind of diversion or treatment options. And you're saying that more people are showing signs of mental health issues. It's not that lawyers or judges are, are going the safe route and requesting these competency evaluations at a higher rate. There really is more mental health issues out there. It certainly appears to be so. When we take a look at these evaluations coming back, the range in the last five years it's kind of fairly consistent that about 50% of the people are found competent and 50% are found not competent. So we are trying to do a secondary screening. So the bill before us actually says that the judge has to really do more of a colloquy before they order the evaluations, really get an understanding of why someone's raising competency. So the hope being that with that, maybe we can uh, reduce the number of people who go for evaluation services. The other thing this bill does is say that we're going to have these uh, crisis um, specialist intervention individuals who are working with our jails to make sure this population is getting the meds that they need, that they are making sure they get the right meds and kind of monitoring them or providing a little bit extra care in jail. Because while they're awaiting for these evaluations, there's a possibility that if they're given the right meds, they can actually uh, start the journey of recovery. So hopefully they'll be found competent or they have, we can withdraw the evaluation. So we're trying to reduce the number of people who are being evaluated. We have also really ramped up the outpatient restoration program because not everyone needs an inpatient level of care. So we have made that program a lot more robust. So those individuals who can receive those services from an outpatient basis will have options of doing that. There's some urgency to this because of the case of the 63-year-old nurse who was thrown down the stairs of the light rail station by somebody who was considered incompetent to stand trial and ended up being uh, released. And so I guess the, the question is, whatever it takes, is there a way while you're waiting to staff up that you can make sure dangerous people are kept off the streets, even if they've 
not been evaluated? Yeah, so, you know, we have a companion bill on assisted outpatient treatment because while competency restoration is a legal framework to get someone to prosecution, we have actually opened up our standards for court-ordered civil treatment. So there is a companion bill on assisted outpatient treatment that says for someone who is out of custody, we can actually do a civil commitment um, petition on them. So the hope really is when you have that combination of assisted outpatient treatment, civil uh, involuntary treatment act, and then of course a forensic restoration, that between those three systems, you're able to actually catch everyone at different levels. So I am actually very excited that once these bills are signed into law, that we're actually going to have a good comprehensive system of dealing with those individuals that have a severe mental illness. So did I hear that correctly? You're on board with the idea of involuntary treatment in cases where that's warranted. Absolutely. I had a bill a few years ago where we rewrote our involuntary treatment act. And it is imperative that individuals who are struggling with a serious mental illness and are a danger to themselves or others, that we don't just wait for them to engage in a criminal activity to get the help they need. I think we have to make sure we have resources available at all points in time, starting with outpatient-assisted outpatient treatment, uh, involuntary treatment, and then, of course, through the criminal justice system. We really have to make sure we're providing services at every point in the spectrum. Senator Monka Dingra, thank you. Thank you. Well, we have to start with this morning's local top story. It is a story we are still talking about. It is a big deal. Three people are dead in a home in Redmond. Cairo News Radio's Sam Campbell is live at the scene. Sam, let's talk more about this really awful situation developing this morning. Travis, a tragic scene in a quiet Redmond neighborhood. People have been periodically coming out of their houses to see yards of crime tape and several investigators going in and out of their neighbor's home. And we're learning that this double homicide, uh, there's a lengthy history between the suspect and his victims. Jill Green with Redmond Police tells us the stalker met his victim through her podcast. He started asking her questions. They developed kind of a friendship until he just began barraging her with text messages and emails. The timeline is unclear, but we know she reached out to Redmond police months ago. Our detectives were actively investigating it, and because the suspect is a trucker, they had not yet served the restraining order. So that takes us to early this morning. Police get the call around 2 this morning that someone had broken in through a window at this house inside the couple who lived there, killed by what police described as the stalker. Inside, uh, the man also fires four shots, killing the woman her husband, and then himself. The, the husband was alive by the time responders got here. They tried to perform CPR and save, to his, save his life, uh, but unfortunately, he passed away. And the uh, victim, the woman's mother, ran to get help. So perhaps that's why we're learning about this now. Yeah, it, it, terrifying and uh, awful. I know uh, you mentioned neighbors have been coming out and, and looking at the scene. Have you been able to speak to anybody and, and get to know who, who this couple was? Of the neighbors who I've spoken with, it seems to be a private neighborhood, and uh, they didn't personally know those neighbors very well, uh, but all of the neighbors clearly distraught. 
I think this is one of the things that a lot of folks listening can unfortunately relate to, this fear of living a very public life with social media. I mean, even if it's just posting on your own Facebook page or your own Instagram page, anyone can often kind of know details about your life. Um, I, I know that that really has been resonating with me this morning. The, the, the idea that this started as just a simple exchange and almost um, a, a, a little bit of a one-sided friendship mm-hmm. feeling, and then it just immediately turned. And from somebody and- in Texas, so you think, okay, this person's far away, I'm going to answer questions, and, and then it gets scary, but you think, this person's far away, right. how can they get to me? Uh, and- so the motivation to come and kill is terrifying. We don't know too many details about what kind of podcast she was running, but I can say that many podcasters, especially those who want to have a normal, well-balanced life outside of their public persona, they actually go by an online alias. And so they try to keep those two lives separate. And, and stories like this are part of the reason why. That's exactly why. I, exactly. And I think that uh, a lot more details here to come out this morning on this really terrifying and tragic story. We appreciate your time this morning, Sam, and your good reporting. Thank you, Travis. It is 714 here on Seattle's Morning News. Should Washington establish a wealth tax? We would be the first state to do so if that does come to fruition. And, and what has been the political fallout of the state Senate's 11th hour passage of a modified police pursuit bill? Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich joining us live to bring us up to speed on those stories. Matt, good morning. Good morning, Travis. Nice to hear you. Nice Voice. to hear you. Uh, and uh, it's day 61 of a 105-day session, so we're kind of like at the halfway moat, uh, Mark, right now. They, this is when all the bills that pass the Senate or the House flip and go to the other chamber, if you want to follow your uh, civics class that you took in high school. And so now they're debating uh, you know, something that passed on one side is now going to, debate, to be debated on the other. And one of those bills is a wealth tax. And uh, But before I even explain that, I, I, I just really appreciate all the listeners who kind of reached out to me who've been hearing this uh, segment I've been doing every day at 7.15 who are driving into work or whatever and appreciate the feedback because I, I'm hearing that they're learning stuff. And that's important for me that they're learning about what's happening in Olympia because what happens in Olympia and the local city council really affects you directly more so, I think, than what happens in Congress. So we're talking about a wealth tax. Now, this is a new tax. It hasn't been hap- had uh, ever had in, in Washington state. It basically established is a 1% tax on the tangible financial assets in in excess of $250 million. So basically, if you have taxes, uh, excuse me, bonds, stocks, and it's over $250 million, above $250 million, uh, you would be taxed a 1% tax on that. And they figure out it's really just 700 people in the state that would be affected, but it's more about the concept of it because Washington requires a uniform tax that all taxpayers pay the same in their property tax. And the state courts have determined that income is property. But since you're just taxing a specific amount of kind of the same specific amount of people with a certain value of their investments, some say that that is illegal. But here's Democratic Senator Noelle Frame explaining her bill. Uh, simply put, the main wealth building tool of the middle class has always been our homes, and we already tax that. That is the property tax. But the main wealth building tool of billionaires and ultramillionaires is financial property, and we don't tax that at all. Tax rate of 0%. 
So there it is. That's what she's basically saying. But then there's a lot of pushback. Uh, Jeff Pack is a concerned citizen, and this is what he had to say. You must feel like Robin Hood, except for you folks are far from Robin Hoods. We're like Robin's in hoods, the grim reapers of wealth taxation, because surely no one needs that much money, so it must be given to others. That's shameful. And when it comes to taxes, this man always has something to say. My name is uh, Tim Iman from Bellevue, and it really boils down to this. Successful people weren't just lucky. They worked their butts off. They took huge risks, sacrificed a lot over many years, and earned their money. And the people who didn't earn this money don't deserve to get it from the people who did. And why? Because it's not their money. They didn't earn it. Now, supporters of this tax say, you know, this money's going to go to good use. The money that's going to be raised is going to go to education and other elements like that. And they also say that the state's tax code is so regressive because it mean, basically that means people with the least amount of money end up paying a higher percentage of their income in taxes. And the wealthy don't pay that as much percentage, even though it's supposed to be uniform. So Andy Billig, though, is the powerful Democratic senator, majority lead in the Senate, and he hinted that this tax uh, may be may need to bake a little while and get some um, juice behind it and may not happen this year. It tends to be hard to be the first state to do something, and we would be the first state to implement a tax like this. You know, typically when a bill comes up that's 10 or 15 other states have done already, we can ask, well, what happened there? When we're the first state, that lends itself to more questions. So there you go. It's going to be debated. And again, it's still in the debate form. It's not going to be not close to passage just yet. But one thing that did pass was the police pursuit bill out of the Senate, surprisingly, uh, the other day. And the person that uh, who basically stopped it from happening is Senator Manka Dingra. What happened is that we found out that on the Senate side, the caucus, which controls everything, it's 29 senators. They voted 15 to 14 within their caucus to put the bill uh, on the House, excuse me, the Senate floor to debate, to, to debate after two months of not even hearing anything, because that was Senator Monker Dinger's uh, choice as a committee chair not to put that bill in front of her committee. So she ended up voting for the bill that modified, that came out of the Senate after she modified it to match the bill that the House failed to vote on the same day. The policy that passed the Senate changed the standard, but it was extremely mindful of ensuring that we are doing the balancing act between human life and property crimes. So what's happening now? That bill now goes over to the House and they refused to hear almost a similar bill on the very last day when they had to pass something out of their out of their floor. So they're going to hear it again. And the Democratic Speaker of the House, uh, Lori Jenkins, holds all the political cards on this now because she controls what bills are going to be heard, including this Senate pursuit bill. There continues to be a, a very broad diversity of opinion about the elements of any pursuit bill within our caucus, looking to balance the concerns that people have. Now, meanwhile, Republicans like Representative uh, Jacqueline Maycumber want auto thefts added as a reason to pursue, uh, but they, ha- they because they're not the party in power, they have to sit on the sidelines. And here's what she had to say. We passed an auto theft prevention policy to really look at the uh, almost 90% increase in auto thefts in the state of Washington in the past year. And yet we didn't pass any meaningful pursuit bills when it comes to auto thefts. 
And so that is what the Republicans are going to be doing again on the House side with this particular bill. It's gotten so much attention. Um, you know, basically what what's happening with the bill is that they've added the ability for police to pursue cars and vehicles when there's a suspect inside. They believe it's part of a violent crime like domestic violence, uh, uh, assault. Uh, they were escaping from police or as it always has been a DUI. But that's a and it's a lower standard to pursue these these cars so it may excuse me it may sound confusing but this is what's how how things are being done in Olympia right what's happening right now now the Senate minority leader Republican John Brown after all this this is the Republican leader in the Senate he basically gave a shout out to Senate Democrats for showing courage to the Democratic leadership who refused to debate that bill for two months. I'm super proud of those folks within the other caucus who stood up and said, no, uh, we disagree and found a way, found the courage to run a bill that came right down the middle with Republican and Democrat votes. And that's a sign that maybe Washington's back on the better path where we're not locked into tribal politics. Now, two, the, the two most controversial bills that actually got bipartisan support for the, like I said, it was day, today's day 61 in the previous 60 days was this bill where Democrats and Republicans split the vote all the way down on the middle, like he said, and the Blake decision bill, which is the uh, possession of small amounts of illegal drugs. Uh, that's another bill that's moving forward, but it's also getting bipartisan support. Uh, it, it's all over the map. Uh, so, And it, there were two close votes. Everything else has been basically almost uh, unanimous on the things that they've been passing, Travis. So that's that's your update. We're going to move forward uh, in more of these debates next week. Uh, and I'm all looking forward to it. If you're a policy wonk like me, it's all good stuff. I certainly learn everything uh, that I need to know whenever you're on the show. I appreciate it very much. Uh, quickly, Matt, do we have any idea what Jay Inslee is saying um, in this situation? I am glad you brought that up. He did. He has the final say so. And he, you know, he's going to sign the check, so to speak, when the bill comes to him. And here's what he had to say about all this yesterday. I think we need to move this needle. I think that's where the public is. And that's where I am. The provision that's come out of the Senate is realistic. And and I hope the House will carefully uh, consider it and pass it. And there's that's how he feels. So he wants something done. And I'm glad you brought that up, Travis. I forgot all about the governor. Hey, appreciate it, Mark. Mark, Matt, Mar- Matt, Matt Markovich. <laughs> My gosh, it's a Friday you morning like for me. Jack Stein. Right. You know, <laughs> appreciate your time, Mark Matovich. Right. <laughs> Matt Markovich uh, in Olympia for us this morning. And. You can also love somebody like I love you, Travis, and we can disagree. Agreed. Yes. <laughs> because I love it. This changing needs to stop. <laughs> I think with having kids, that's persuaded me. Uh, your daily dose of kindness now brought to you by Robert W. Baird. Like many restaurant owners in the pandemic, it was hard to financially survive. That was the case for Vuong Li of Lee's Noodle House until his young and determined daughter did what she does best, social media. CBS's David Begno has the story. Lee and his wife cook the food. They serve it too, and their children help when they can. Jennifer, a grad student in Southern California, thought maybe my TikToks will go viral, and that might help the family business. So this is our Yelp review. If you guys can take photos of your food and upload it, it would really help my parents' business. Thank you. 
it worked. So much so that Jennifer ended up flying home to Northern California just so she could help her parents serve the food. Wow, the power of social media is like insane. Okay, come with me to Lee's Noodle House. When Erica Altis saw Jennifer's TikTok, she activated her own audience of more than 100,000 people on Instagram to help. I realized I live less than two miles from this place. And so I decided to call on my audience because I have a big local following and ask them if they would like to contribute to a larger tip. The tip ended up being $2,000 to give to the family for their restaurant. You know, my community did that for, for them. It's no secret. I love the food. Oh, so your favorite thing still the pot stickers? I think so, but I mean, I, I I would eat everything. Mr. Lee served us and everyone else that day. His wife was back in the kitchen cooking, and that's where I first met them. Oh, hello, David. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thank you for coming. That donation from Altus is going to help the Lee family start making some improvements around here. Be honest with you, that money that's going to help like fix. The AC, uh, central air conditioner, buy a new ice machine that carry on because my AMC broke down, my central air broke down. So I, hopefully I use this money to repair this summer. Meanwhile, if you're ever in Santa Rosa and you can't get a seat, there's always takeout. And this takeaway. I think it just gives you kind of a restored faith in humanity, right? I think with oh. so much going on in the world that... People want some good news, and we need to get it more into the mix. So I love that you guys are doing this, and you're highlighting this, because it may make people do this in their own communities and try to support restaurants in their own communities or any business in their community that's struggling. And so I think that's the takeaway is one small act Cheers can go a far way. to that. Yeah. It's just to bring so much love and joy to my family, because without the, the people from the community, I, I don't know if I can survive. Welcome back to Seattle's Morning News. And now from the G and Ursula Show, weekdays 9 to noon here on Cairo News Radio. G, Scott. Hey, hey, hey. Looking fabulous. I appreciate you, bro. We always, always. have to like dissect his outfits I whenever know. he walks in. Even Dave will just be like, okay, so, so your necklaces and all that. Tell us about it. So someone asked me if I had a headache because I, lately I've been wearing sunglasses. Uh-huh. You know what? I just feel good when I wear them. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know what I, mean? yes, yes. I just feel good when I wear them, yeah. so I just rock them. Hey, you look fabulous. I appreciate you. So, in the last twenty-four hours, basically since we saw you yesterday, yes. Sean Kemp has now not been charged mm-hmm. and is not in jail. Yes, you know, um, th- this is a originally it was. You know, was policing the drive-by shooting. Yeah. He's saying self-defense. Right. Where do we stand at this moment? And then there was the video we saw. Yeah. Um, I spent all day on this topic, literally all day. I talked to law enforcement down south. I have talked to a politician about this topic. And I also talked with a federal defense lawyer about this topic. And here's what I found out. This happens a lot. It happens an awful lot. Lawyers, prosecutors, and judge. All three of those fields... They all need seven years of schooling to learn how the law works. All of them. But in the state of Washington, no disrespect to law enforcement because my father was a cop. In the state of Washington, you need 720 hours to be a cop. Mm -hmm. You need 1,600 hours to be a cosmetologist. You need 4,000 hours to be a plumber. You need 8,000 hours to be an electrician. 
the part that got me yesterday with the whole drive-by shooting thing was the amount of times that I heard, oh, well, you know, they just do that. It just matters what the prosecutor says. And then when the prosecutor figures it out, no. Do you know how the history in this country of the amount of people falsely accused of something, the amount of people who are not exonerated because of a video? Let me ask this question. What if it wasn't Sean Kemp? And what if there was no video? What if this was just a random guy by the name of Travis? Travis, drive-by shooting on there. No video, no nothing. Now, you, Travis, have to go and get an attorney to pay for it. Or if you don't have the money, you go ahead, you get uh, a public defender. I think the most upsetting thing about yesterday for me was very simple. I don't like the narrative of the drive-by shooting when it wasn't. You can apply that to any other thing in the world. Just say what it was. Don't just slap things out there and just be like, oh, I hope it sticks. And that's the part I did not like about that. Now, if there would have been reckless or Sean Kemp in a shooting incident and he's shooting a gun and all that and he got a... Man, reckless we, you, endangerment. Reckless endangerment. Yeah. You yeah. saw it? Yeah, for you sure. You felt, and in yesterday, I'm not sure if you were ready to say it on the show, maybe I didn't create a safe environment for you to give your feelings, but you feel that that charge, that jail booking in the police hands was racial bias. Yes. The, fe- the federal defense lawyer that I talked to yesterday about this topic told me it happens all the time where their clients like, wait. I thought that I was going to get, and she has to let them know. Doesn't matter what the cop told you. It matters what the prosecutor, whatever their charges are. So you you, you think about it. Out there in the the field, and like I said, this is no disrespect to cops, but this is how it goes. They're out there in the field. They come up. There's a charge. Then it goes. Prosecutors decide if they're going to go through with the case. They make that decision. But before it gets to then... First, it goes through who? The media. And that interaction between media and law enforcement, up until 2020, the media never questioned law enforcement. It was a thing of whatever the cops said, that was the headline, Mm -hmm. period. Mm -hmm. Now, 2020 happens, and I think that there has been more due diligence with this topic. But again, you can't always take... What is said all the time, do I need to remind folks of what happened with the sheriff of Pierce County calling and saying that um, the newspaper delivery guy was threatening to kill him? How did that story turn out? So there is a history, not just 200 years, 300. No, we're talking about up until today. So that's why, unfortunately, yesterday, the whole, quote, drive-by shooting just had me off my game all day yesterday. But I was determined to get to the bottom and get real answers. Now, the unfortunate part, here's the unfortunate part about my homework yesterday, is those same people can't come on the air and tell this story. All of these things happen off the air. Yeah. The the change will happen when they come on the air to talk about it. G. Scott, we appreciate you. you coming on the air and helping us better understand 
so much about what has been happening. G. Scott, 9 to noon, the G. Ursula Show. Thank you very much. Seattle's Morning News. This is Travis Mayfield in for Dave Ross, along with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. Friday mornings, we go to Washington, D.C. with Face the Nation moderator and CBS News Chief Foreign Affairs Correspondent, Margaret Brennan. Margaret, good morning. Good morning. President Biden laid out his budget plan. Anything surprising and any GOP responses or alternatives already out there? No Republican alternative yet uh, waiting on that. But this is a likely dead on arrival proposal from the president, a seven trillion dollar budget that would do a number of things, include raise taxes on the rich. It would bolster military spending with an eye towards China. Um, but also the White House promises reduce the deficit by like two to three trillion dollars. Um, of course, as you know, one of the reasons we're so focused on the possibility of Republicans and Democrats coming to an agreement on the budget and on spending is because Republicans have said they won't take a necessary vote to lift the debt ceiling. Remember that cap on borrowing the U.S. has already hit. So we, the United States government can't pay its past bills without that vote happening. They won't do that until there is an agreement on future spending. Um, and so that's why this presentation of the budgets is sort of moving us along in a process that uh, promises to be fairly contentious over the next weeks and months. Yeah, and, and honestly feels a lot like the beginning of another campaign season. So let, let me ask about that. Exactly. 2024, a race for the White House. Where is that sitting? And, and do we have a front runner at this moment? <laughs> well, you're right, President Biden, in listing out his priorities. And that's what the budget, he says, is. It shows what his values are, he argues. Um, is including a number of social spending programs and things that he would like to get done but hasn't gotten done in the past few years. But that also sounds a lot like a promise that could be encapsulated in a re-election campaign bid. Um, he has not made that official yet, but on Sunday's program, we will make the go- we will have the governor of uh, New Jersey, Democrat uh, Phil Murphy, with us. He is one of the governors that's been asked by the Biden team to help advise on a presidential reelection campaign should Mr. Biden pull the trigger on that. But in the meantime, the Republican um, landscape continues to become more interesting with more potential Republican candidates putting out feelers. Uh, To date, it is really just three who've actually declared candidacy, but there is this drumbeat as individuals wait to see if the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, will do what he's widely expected to do, which is to jump into the race. Is the Trump orbit um, changing at all? I mean, we now have the looming possibility of an indictment out of New York. He was at CPAC, which, um, you know, the straw poll was interesting. And then we've seen some national polls that have him way ahead of the Florida governor. Where, Where does the Trump orbit stand? Well, the former president continues to have a dedicated group of followers, as you saw in that um, conservative political action committee gathering in the Washington area last week, that CPAC gathering you mentioned. Um, And so it's not clear that any of these Republican contenders can unseat him as sort of the kingmaker within the party at this moment. Uh, But you're right. Um, The New York Times was first to report and CBS did confirm that the Manhattan District Attorney's Office did signal to the former president's lawyers that he could uh, potentially face criminal charges. 
Um, this is in regard to that investigation of the hundreds of thousands of dollars paid via his then attorney to a porn star named Stormy Daniels, if you remember that case from a few years ago. So the uh, indication um, to the former president's team that that he could testify to a grand jury um, may be seen as a step towards indictment. But this is not a certainty, and this case itself is a fairly complicated one because the hush money itself, as I understand it, isn't viewed as necessarily the problem. It's rather the connection to using campaign funds potentially or having it be viewed as uh, a campaign uh, item. Uh, let's change the subject and talk um, about Russia stepping up missile attacks in Ukraine this week. That's, um, you know, obviously not good news for our um, friends in Ukraine. What does this mean for the ongoing war there? The ongoing war is brutal. It is uh, not winding down. And despite all of the death toll that Russia has suffered in its invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Vladimir Putin has not signaled uh, any interest in diplomacy to end it. That's according to um, European leaders and to the U.S. government. So uh, it is brutal and horrific news to the people of Ukraine uh, as they see um, these continued attacks step up. And one thing that's deeply concerning to the United States, to Israel, to other allies is the growing partnership between Russia and other U.S. adversaries like Iran, which is now providing ammunition and rockets and missiles uh, to Russia, and uh, also the potential aid coming from China and the existing aid coming from North Korea. So this is really becoming uh, a wider conflict, drawing in other actors as well. And looking at who else you have on the show this weekend, I see Sarah Ellison and then one of my favorite reporters at NPR, David Fulkenflik. I'm assuming the question of what is happening at Fox News is going to come up. That's right. This $1.6 billion Dominion voting lawsuit against Fox News. I mean, the, the tag, the price tag alone is staggering for a business owned by News Corp. Um, and the revelation through discovery of these emails and text messages that show that some of their on-air personalities and anchors were saying things on air that Fox News executives knew were factually incorrect, misleading and wrong. And yet it continued to be propagated on air. And you can draw a line, some would argue, between that information, that false information being presented to the public and those who resorted to violence on January the 6th. If you want to get to that question of why would people believe that? Well, the argument here from Dominion voting is they were being told that. And despite all of that being made public... We have Tucker Carlson on the air in recent days showing videos kind of cherry picked from the the day at the Capitol, January 6th, saying basically, look, it was just tourists taking pictures. And there's been a real outrage even among Republicans about that. Yes, there have many of the Republicans who ran for their lives that day uh, and went into, um, you know, secure rooms to escape armed mob members uh, have spoken out against it. Uh, Leader McConnell in the Senate said, you know, he takes the word of the Capitol Hill police over a TV personality, uh, as did uh, a number of people, including Mitt Romney, uh, the Republican uh, from Utah, who has said um, this is, you know, just completely false and misleading. So for people who survived that day, 
and we're actually there on Capitol Hill um, and are Republicans, they aren't supporting this this narrative that Tucker Carlson is is building. Face the Nation moderator and CBS News chief foreign affairs correspondent Margaret Brennan. Thank you. Thank you. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. Our resident historian, Felix Bennell, joins us Friday mornings for All Over the Map. A quick look at the stories behind the local places and the things we know and love and sometimes we learn about. This week, the Evergreen State's forgotten high-flying aviator with a famous grandfather who the airfield is named for at Fort Lewis. We're talking about Grayfield, which is different from McCord Field, and I want to thank Lee Corbin, a good friend of the show, for his research assistance. Grayfield at Fort Lewis is named for Hawthorne C. Gray, not a household name. It was made official back in April 38, 1938, when the base was expanding in the run-up to World War II. Gray was born in Pasco in 1889 or maybe 1890. His father was a Columbia River steamboat pilot. His grandfather was William H. Gray, one of the Americans who came to the the old Oregon country with the Whitmans in the 1830s, and who then wrote a famously vitriolic history of the Northwest, published published back in 1870. He was a critic of the Catholic missionaries, critic of the Hudson's Bay Company, just kind of an angry guy. But that's not why Grayfield got its name. It was 96 years ago yesterday, March 9, 1927, when Hawthorne C. Gray, officially known as an aeronaut, made the first of three major record-breaking solo balloon ascents for the U.S. Army. All three launched from what's now Scott Air Force Base in Illinois. On that first ascent, Gray eventually got to about 28,000 feet, but he had passed out around 12,000 feet and only regained consciousness as the balloon was descending too quickly. It ultimately crashed in a ditch and Gray twisted his ankle, but the recording instruments proved he'd set a new American altitude record, though he was unconscious at the time. On the second ascent, May 4th, 1927, He got to 42,000 feet, and this time he was awake for the whole thing because this time he had an oxygen supply. But again, the balloon came down too fast, and he had to jump out at 8,000 feet and parachute to safety. Oh, my gosh. And that meant he didn't get any credit for the record. The people at the International Aeronautic Union said, nope, you don't get that 42,000. Even though it's a world record, you're not going to get kind because you had to jump out of your balloon. Wow. And to give some context, it was two weeks later that Charles Lindbergh flew across the Atlantic in an airplane ride. So this is an age of a- aviation exploration. Okay, so the third ascent, November 4th, 1927. Write this down. Hawthorne, he had all oxygen stuff, he had heated goggles and gloves, and he had an AM radio on board the balloon. And in his logbook, as he ascended into the sky, he noted that WLW in Cincinnati was playing this song, which was a hit in 1927. That's just another day wasted away by the Broadway nightlights. Now, music aside, something went wrong on the balloon. Uh, The balloon was found hanging in a tree the next morning near Sparta, Tennessee. Gray was in the basket, deceased, perhaps from asphyxiation or heart attack. Nobody was sure. But he was posthumously awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for his three ascents. And this is part of what the citation says, and I want to read it because it's downright poetic. Okay, quote, Having attained an altitude of 42,000 feet, he waited for 10 minutes testing his reactions before making a last rapid climb to his ceiling and a more rapid descent to safe atmosphere. Undoubtedly, his courage was greater than his supply of oxygen. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, yes. His courage <laughs> yes. was greater than his supply of yeah, oxygen. That, true. Like Icarus, he flew too close to the sun. Yes. Now, Hawthorne C. Gray is buried at Arlington National Cemetery. It's unclear who led the effort to name the field at Fort Lewis for him. Made a lot of sense, though, because he was a local guy. And at that point, in 1938, the Army's 3rd Balloon Squadron, which did a bunch of World War II surveillance stuff, they were based there at Fort Lewis. So it's just sad he's not better known here. And maybe for the centennial coming up, there'll be some big celebration of Hawthorne C. Gray. Historian Felix Bennell, all over the map. And you can always listen to his stuff, read his stuff over on MyNorthwest.com. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM or subscribe to this podcast and you'll never miss the show.